Hello, and welcome to Techno Sapien, a future tense series of podcasts from Slate, New America, and Arizona State University. In this series, as the name suggests, we'll examine how technology, now and in the future, will impact us as a species and how we relate to each other. Each podcast is a debate about whether machines will solve our problems or make them worse. I'm Christine Rosen, a Future Tense Fellow and Senior Editor of The New Atlantis, and I'm the skeptical voice on technology. I'm joined by Marvin Amore, who has never met a technology he doesn't love. Isn't that right, Marvin? Close. Marvin is also a Future Tense Fellow here at New America and a First Amendment and Internet Policy Lawyer. Today, we're going to discuss whether we've let databases and ranking systems replace expertise, serendipity, and intuition. And we're talking to Tom Vanderbilt, the author of Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. Hi, Tom. Hello. Well, I think Marvin might want to kick us off because I have a feeling he doesn't like the fact that I'm arguing that ranking systems replace expertise, serendipity, and intuition. Do you agree with that, Marvin? You know, my question is whether we've let facts and information and data replace over-credentialed blowhards, false heuristics, and racism in making decisions. I would rather rely on data. But I'm not the expert. Tom Vanderbilt is, is the data expert. So. Yes. Tom, why don't you give us a, just a broad sense of your feelings about um, review sites, for example, like Yelp, um, Amazon, TripAdvisor. What do you think of these huge databases of public opinion? Uh, you know, I, I'm probably somewhere between uh, you two in terms of, you know, my, my techno- technophilia and technophobia on this because, I mean, what sort of drove me to investigate this in an essay for the Wilson Quarterly was, you know, like everyone, I've been sort of, uh, from the consumer side of this, just had to deal with these, uh, you know, new forms of information. And it, it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, taking a, a trip or going to a restaurant or trying to decide what film to watch, I was plunged into this sort of, you know, amazing hole of, where I would have to read through hundreds of, I, I would literally read hundreds of reviews. And just when I was on the brink of making a decision, I had read, you know, 10 great reviews. Then someone comes along and says, oh, you know, there was a, a cockroach in, in the rice. And suddenly all that previous stuff has been contaminated. So back to square one. And I just found myself, you know, thinking we had gone from the situation where we once had, you know, an information poor environment to one that was information rich. And we were trying to sort out you know, there was the second project that had to happen in which how do we sort out all the new information, all the new evaluative information. Well, what do you think in general about the idea that as a society we're heading towards a world where we never have an undatabased experience, right? We have, you know, is this going to narrow cultural taste? I have a feeling Marvin's going to interrupt me to say, no, no, it broadens it. We get more information and that's always better. But do you think that what are the risks you see and then what are the benefits that you see um, from what you've studied so far on ranking systems? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a, the danger of the filter bubble, but I think we've always had this danger, and I think humans just naturally filter across all kinds of, we're just natural categorizers. And, I mean, I think, the, what is the figure? There are 100,000 new books reviewed every year. The New York Times probably covers uh, 20 of those in a given week. Often they reduplicate, they, they, they duplicate their books they reviewed in, in the, the daily section. They re- review again on Sunday by a different person, which <laughs> I, I don't quite get the, uh, the logic of that. So uh, you go to a bookstore. There's that one table in the front that has some books that have been chosen for you. They have about a two-week window to survive uh, kind of you know, public attention. And once they're off that table, you're in trouble. So <laughs> we've always been filtering the, the end caps at grocery stores or retail environments, That's pre- stuff that's presented up higher, you're supposed to get to that first. Um, 
so, you know, the, the other side, the promise, though, is that, uh, you know, it, it kind of ties in with the idea that all this stuff, all this kind of cultural product is now becoming available online as well. So there's greater freedom of choice. How do you find what you're actually uh, looking for? And, well, I mean, one interesting study I, I looked at was um, they looked at customers who had been with Blockbuster, the store, and then when Blockbuster Video went to an online streaming model as well, they tracked those people who had been retail customers, and then they looked at their behavior once they were online Blockbuster customers. And they found they were actually renting a wider variety of films once they were online. So the idea is having more choice, uh, you know, gave they they behaved accordingly. And, I mean, that, that sort of steps aside from the recommendation and ranking. But, um, I mean, so that, that's the promise. There's... You know, there is more stuff out there to find if we can find a way to it. And how are we going to find a way to it? We have to wade through all these uh, recommendations. So Christine and I must lead different lives. While you were talking, I, I felt like, how could Christine and I disagree on anything? But it occurs to me that... We disagree on everything, Marvin. <laughs> but when... And, I, and I'm wondering what, what you do, Tom. When I go to a new restaurant or when I'm in a new neighborhood and looking for a restaurant... I always check Yelp. I never go anywhere that is not on Yelp. Mm. Um, it's so unlikely. And I'll sometimes read the reviews, but I generally want an aggregate score. I almost never go anywhere without checking Yelp. When I go to a bookstore, I was recently in New York and I went to Italy, which isn't a bookstore, but they had lots of books, uh, mm. cookbooks, books about making pizza. I simply turned over each book took out my Amazon app and scanned the barcode and started reading reviews. I didn't look at the book jacket. I didn't look at the author's bio. In retrospect, all I did was check Amazon for reviews. And just for me, over time, I, I've realized that I prefer other users' reviews over someone chosen by the New York Times, some cinephile, some person who just lives and breathes and spends all their time in cookbooks or in movies. I just like normal people's reviews. And mm. so I'm just sort of curious what, what you do when you make decisions uh, to get a better idea. I mean, I, I tend to behave a little bit according to, to each medium. So, I mean, Yelp I, I use as well, you know, quite rigorously. And I think it... it it has some fascinating repercussions. I think, you know, going back to an economist like George Akerlof, he talked about the the lemon problem, which is a classic example, in the used car market. And, you know, no one quite knew. I mean, the seller had a better idea of the quality of the car than the buyer did. So it sort of depressed the market overall because no one trusted each other. And he actually talks about food in this context. He said, you know, you could go to a, a businessman or whatever, would go to a city didn't really know where to go, so he would go to, you know, a you could go to a chain. Chains were the sort of way to correct this information problem. And chains enabled you to have about as good of a meal as the average restaurant in that town, but you could never do better than average, uh, unless, you, you know, you sort of did a credible amount of research. Now with Yelp, you can, you can get to that above average place. And I think this is you know, caused uh, the chains to, to react even. I mean, there's a study that looked at, at the effect of Yelp and found that, uh, you know, it, it actually uh, positive reviews benefit independent restaurants uh, much more, which makes sense because who reviews the chain? Mm -hmm. You know, I give Donald's mm -hmm. two stars. Uh, but I, I think the presence of this information portal has caused chains to perhaps become better, and you can argue that something like Chipotle is 
is much better than than a Taco Bell, for example. Although there's still clearly an audience for Taco Bell, but you know that this you don't have to go to the the lowest common denominator place that you don't know anything about this information problem. So so that's really that's really fascinating to me because what you said earlier about Blockbuster is that when people go online, you have the phenomenon of what people call the long tail. They not only watch the popular movies, but also all the kind of quirky different movies that are sort of on this long, you know, graphical tail. Uh, the same way that when people download music online, uh, we've seen a lot of indie artists and artists that hadn't been popular simply when you went and bought a CD at a store become popular online. There's infinite shelf space online. You've seen this with media, with bloggers being able to compete with large media companies, not really compete with, but just sort of serve the needs of a few people. You've sort of seen a broadening out of the number of people who can be successful. And we might see that in the physical world because of Yelp or other sort of uh, recommendation uh, systems, TripAdvisor. People won't have to go just to McDonald's or Taco Bell because they now have a wider range of places they can actually vet. I think that's amazing. I think that's really fascinating. Uh, and I'm not sure if there's more data on that, but there's a renaissance thanks to the awesomeness of the internet in independent stores and restaurants. Okay, okay. That'd but be what, awesome. Before we all get our heads in the clouds here, I just have to say a word about Yelp as a tastemaker, for example, because they've had several class action lawsuits filed against them because they basically, some charge, have been acting like an internet mafia going around shaking down businesses, insisting that they buy ads so that their positive reviews get pushed to the top and their negative ones get buried. So I don't think that we should be so naive is to think that the crowd is is great and that these these organizations that are serving as intermediaries are as transparent as we like to believe they are. That's separate from the issue of whether normal people are posting their honest opinions online. They are being filtered through a business. Yelp is a business. It has to make money to survive. So I think we shouldn't avoid that issue in this question about whether we want to replace the old tastemakers with the new. We might still decide Yelp so, is better, so but as, it's as, not a utopia. As I have to remind Christine, no one's saying it's a utopia. We're saying it's better, or it's be- it's different at least. Before the old taste makers, the folks like the New York Times had their own interests. Right, there were reasons why they might not run articles about local car crashes or something that might have been caused by defects because one of their biggest advertisers were the car dealers nearby. Right, there's been tons of research on advertiser effects on newspapers. Th- you know, we're humans. We're just you know, one degree removed from chimpanzees, we and now we have awesome weapons and toys and stuff. Chimpanzees um, with Yelp. That's going to be chimpanzees the with Yelp. That's what <laughs> Let's we are. Let's let Tom Christine. weigh in instead of our bickering. Tom, what do you think about this challenge well, of the tastemakers? Well, we're, we're both saying it's sort of pointing to you know sort of what might be called you know presentation effects, uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, there's still. You know, I mean, there's the question of, of just out-and-out out fraud on these online review sites, which people have developed algorithms to sniff out which reviews are fraudulent. But then there's just the idea of even on the web with this infinite amount of, of you know, choices and, and ways to look for things, there's still sort of going back to something as simple as the bestseller list. You know, there's still – you land on Spotify to look for music. They can only show you a certain amount of music on that splash page. You still have to be motivated to – search for something and, and there's sort of a you know phenomenon called search fright where people you know a lot of people sign up for these services and then they quit using them because they basically run out of things that they panic they don't know actually what to look for and you know so Spotify shifted to away from just to something called discovery you know 
here's here's music that you might like. I mean, kind of, they always had recommendation, but now it's and what they're trying to do in a way is recreate the old model of radio again, just sort of without the without the actual DJ, just sort of an algor- algorithmatized uh, radio that can serve you up a personal you know slew of things according to your taste. But there's still this question that you know what am I going to choose? It's, it's turned out to be you know sort of huge, and then so. It's not as quite as utopian as you might think in that I just read a, a study also looking at music purchasing that I think the figures were something like 70% of the revenue was flowing to something like 1% of the artists when you looked at o- overall music sales. And this points to another idea here, which is just that there are people who are more self-selecting to want variety. And these are the people who have flocked to some of the online. I mean, these are the long-tail people, but... Those people were always long tail people. They were like me when I was in college, you know, hunting down obscure records in, in dirty little, you know, cluttered record stores. Mm-hmm. Now they've just moved online. There's always been the other people who just wanted what was there and available, what they had heard of. Uh, so in some ways, th- those things have just recreated themselves online. Well, at the very some least, of the same dynamics. Yeah, at the very least, we made it a little easier for people who want cool and different music. But harder for the artists creating it to make a living. No, that's this not is, right. A lot is... of independent artists are able to make a living now through tours and shows and selling T-shirts, and they never would have made a living if they couldn't have if they had to go through the big the big record Live studios. Live concert ticket sales are in a steep decline. No, no, that's where all the money comes from. That's why new contracts with musicians are called three sixty cla- have three sixty clauses, meaning they get a penny out of everything the musician does from record sales to concerts. Concerts are where they make the majority of their money. I saw Jay Z recently and he said that he makes most of his money. Okay, so now we're citing Jay-Z as our authority. I'm going to turn back to another authority, Tom. I want to know, what what do you think in terms of quality? We've we've talked a lot about quantity so far, but do you foresee a world where we're going to see, Marvin's making, I think, a a good argument that we're going to see more compelling independent cultural production as a result of this new system. But others have argued that what we're going to see is just simply 50 shades of gray and everything else, because you're going to still need these kind of blockbusters to anchor... um, an industry, and you might still have a little room here and there for some independent cultural production. But how do these ranking systems? Do you think long term? To ask you to predict the future a little bit, how do you see them actually changing the quality of what we consume in terms of culture? Well, wow, that's a good question. One that I actually haven't um, considered. Uh, I mean, it's the Fifty Shades of Grey problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one wonders if if you know the, the, the most immediate danger. Perhaps it's a promise as well. I mean, just to use Netflix's example again of um, creating, they've actually gone in and used people's predilections that they have observed over millions of transactions to to now generate original content that they can program on Netflix. And there's this idea that they're actually giving the people what they truly want, uh, sort of before they even know it, or using some distillation of, of their taste. Of course, you know, Amazon tried to do the same thing, and, and what I forget what the show is that they did, it didn't do quite as well. So, you know, it, it, is, hard to, uh, it, it is hard to predict these things. Um, I mean, I wonder, you know, what, what, what are the – will we get into this situation where, you know, these things will be extensively – is it a new form of, of focus grouping and that mm-hmm. sort of thing? And is there a role for, I don't know, someone like a Dwight McDonald, a mid-century, you know, Mandarin who could – Review a book like Michael Harrington's *The Other America* and kickstart this, you know, immensely, you know, culturally influential. The book became *The War on Poverty*. Is, there, is that figure going to emerge from this crowdsourced 
you know, or do we, do we just have to go on these great tides of sort of public uh, of opinion? And um, I, I don't know. These are, you know, things that are in play, I suppose. Now, I always thought of Fifty Shades of Grey as proof that expertise was wrong. So, so what I've read about Fifty Shades of Grey was that before that book, you couldn't have a heroine, a character who was between the ages of like 18 and 22. It was too old for young adult fiction, too young for like adult fiction. It would have been rejected. She kicked off an entire, she put the book out as fan lit, took off across the internet, then she got a book deal. So the folks who are experts, the gatekeepers of the publishing industry, these like experts were completely wrong. And the data of her being able to go directly to the public with her you know, brilliant fiction. Okay, uh, I had to are. read those books and review them. I was actually uh-huh. paid to read those books. And uh-huh. I'm telling you, I was not paid enough. I mean, I would urge you, again, this is a question of quality. You might be right about how she got into the system. But this issue of whether this is what we want being the basis for, I mean, it's keeping a publishing house afloat with its, with its you know, incredible sales. But in terms of Would making, you deny people the choice of buying that book? Yes, I would ban them. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. But um, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, look, it's mindless uh, good fun, I suppose, if, if one is uh, um, interested in, in, you know, S&M light. But, um, but publishers rejected the book because they thought it wouldn't sell, not because they thought it wasn't good enough. And they were so wrong about what would sell and what people wanted to read that the fact that she could go straight to the public uh, and the public could review the book and share it. Like that's what happened. This is a perfect example of what Tom is talking about, where you have individual tastemakers proving the experts wrong. All right, I will still. Uh, although, what, yeah, I wouldn't call her a tastemaker, but that self-publishing, self- <laughs> you know, it, it does have its promise, but that has an even longer long tail, which can get pretty. You know, some. I mean, we hear about the success stories of things that were not chosen by the publishers, but what we don't hear about is all the self-published stuff that. You know, basically, no one wants to read. That's, that's, I mean, it, just like all the professionally published stuff that no one wants to read. <laughs> well, there, there's that too. But I mean, th- but this gets back to something that you know. I think one thing critics are, are sort of for is you know trying to figure out. If you look at the bestseller list, for example, just as this classic previous filtering device. I mean, it's a great measure of current popular taste. What it's a terrible measure of is of sort of long-lasting literary value. When's the last time you read a historical bestseller? I mean, go back and look at the bestseller list in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. It is obscurorama. I mean, these are things that were, were relevant to readers in their day, were perhaps, you know, fun, were illuminative, and, and just died. I mean, they have no currency today, whereas, you know, you can have a book like, uh, you know, Fitzgerald's works that were not, didn't sell well at all in their day, and, uh, you know, continue to be assigned, perhaps because of some canonization process where professors keep assigning them, but, you know, by and large, it was, it was critics, you know, who were the sort of early warning detectors on those books that said, "Hey, these are these are what you know you should, maybe should really be paying attention to." Mm-hmm. But, but even then, stuff. critics were wrong. <laughs> even then, well, exactly. Even then, you know, Fitzgerald's own best friends were praising Dust Passos, who's now forgotten. <laughs> all right. Well, on this rather um, uh, chilling note about all of our hopes for posthumous fame, I do want to thank Tom Vanderbilt, the author of Traffic, for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Real treat. My pleasure. Thank you. I'd like also to thank Ariel Bogle, Elizabeth Weingarten, and Fuzz Hogan for producing this series. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. With Marvin Amori, I'm Christine Rosen. Thanks for listening.